Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. What can be discovered between the pages of a cookbook? We're digging deep to answer that question on this week's show. We begin with the inspiring story of humanity preserved through recipes from the time of the Holocaust. Chef Alan Shia joins us to share the story of how he met a gentleman who survived the horrors of that time and the recipes that survived as well. Then we speak with culinary historian Gerald Patu, whose lifelong obsession with cookbooks led him to uncover an almost forgotten tome, the Lafayette Cookbook. The story of his discovery and the book's content is pretty surprising. There's really nothing typically Cajun in the century-old cookbook. Wait till you hear why. And historian Mickey Pfeffer joins us with tales of New Orleans' own Grace King. It seems that the celebrated literary figure relished the art of dining and had a lifelong fascination with food. Pfeffer reveals her amazing discoveries that include King's dinners with literary luminaries like Mark Twain. We're digging deep for a look into our culinary past on this week's Louisiana Eats. A few years ago, Chef Alan Shia and his wife Emily were in Washington, D.C., browsing the archives at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. We were down there in their basement in the archives where all of the important documents that are not on display in the museum are stored and preserved. And we were there to look at culinary artifacts from the Holocaust. Among the items Elan and Emily came across were recipes written in concentration camps. Under the most dire of circumstances, Jewish prisoners recorded recipes on stolen scraps of paper, on the backs of munitions factory forms, even in the margins of Nazi propaganda leaflets. I always knew that I wanted to somehow connect with these recipes from the Holocaust and kind of understand why food was so important to people back then when everything else was going on. As they were looking through all these artifacts, Elan came across an item that amazed him a slim family cookbook composed of recipes neatly handwritten in Hungarian by Clara Fenvez. Clara did not survive the Holocaust, but her recipe book did. 
Elan learned that her son, Stephen Fenvez, had donated the book and volunteered regularly at the museum. And so we found the Fenvez family cookbook, and as we were looking through it, and they told me that Stephen was still alive, I thought to myself, here's an opportunity where I can learn more about these recipes and learn more about this book and really get firsthand you know, knowledge of this book. And I can talk with Stephen directly about it. Growing up in the town of Subotica, in what is now Serbia, Stephen Fenvez had all the comforts of an upper-middle-class life. His father was the editor of an influential Hungarian-language newspaper. His mother's cookbook was most likely made at the printing press attached to the family's residence. So in their printing press, they were able to um, make this book and bind it in, in beautiful binding. And this is the book that they used in their kitchen and ate from. And they were a pretty well-to-do family, and so they had a full-time cook whose name is Marish. And Marish, their cook, would run the kitchen with, a, with an iron fist, as, as Stephen said, and would be their provider of all of these recipes. Stephen would go in there and, and Marish would cook for them. And so there, there was so much, so many recipes in this book, about 150 recipes or so. And interestingly enough, this Jewish family the the cookbook really didn't have a lot of traditional Jewish food in it. It was really that Hungarian food. Yeah, well, they didn't keep kosher. And so, you know, there was a lot of recipes in there that you wouldn't expect from like a, a Jewish cookbook. Uh, but it was filled with all of these incredible recipes of, of vegetables and salads and uh, Things like hors d'oeuvres, like these little potato circles, which were like a potato dough that was yeasted and stuffed with ground lamb and yogurt and um, fried on the stovetop. And things like semolina sticks, where Stephen, that was one of his favorite things when he was a child. It was like cooked semolina and then cut and breaded and fried. And he would snack on those as a kid. Marish was let go in 1941, once Hungary occupied their region and imposed laws outlawing Jews from employing non-Jews. In 1944, Stephen was 13 years old when he and his family were forced from their home after the Germans took control of Subotica. What happened back then was when the Jews would be run from their homes and sent off to the ghettos, uh, all of the anti-Semitic neighbors would be lined up outside and ready to go in and loot the apartment or the house and take all their valuables. So when Stephen and his family were being escorted from their home and sent off to the ghettos, Stephen didn't notice, but Marish, his family cook, was standing in that line, uh, and she went into the apartment and she took the family cookbook and some of Stephen's mother's artwork. She was a lithograph artist. And, you know, back then, if you were 
helping a Jew, you could be killed by the Nazis or put, in, put into a concentration camp. So this is something that Marish felt so strongly about, that the family was going to want this cookbook, that she risked her life to go in and save the cookbook, and then eventually give it back to the Fenves family. Stephen Fenves's mother and grandmother died at Auschwitz, and his father died shortly after the war. When Stephen and his sister survived Auschwitz miraculously, uh, the the cook Marish brought the book back to them, and uh, they were about to then escape communist Yugoslavia and couldn't bring anything with them. And so they had to give the cookbook and the artwork back to Marish. And they then eventually ended up in Chicago. And Marish eventually mailed the book to them in Chicago. And then Stephen and his sister had it as had that along with the mother's artwork in their in their home, their whole, you know, their whole lives. And it was one of their, their family heirlooms, the, one of the few things that survived. After discovering the Fenves family cookbook at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and learning Stephen Fenves was alive and living in the region, Elan was a man on a mission. When Emily and I came across this book at the museum, it had been sitting there in the archives for many, many years. Uh, and I felt that, you know, something like this needs to be shared and it needs to be experienced by people. And if it's sitting in this cabinet, it yes, it's preserved, but no one's tasting this food. No one's seeing these dishes and smelling these smells. So I reached out to Stephen and asked him if I could cook some of the recipes from his family's book. Um, the problem was they were all in, written in Hungarian. And Stephen said, uh, yes, you can. I'll have to translate them for you first. And so Stephen and I created this beautiful friendship, and he would translate the recipes from his family's book. I would then cook the food and mail them to him to, uh, to taste. Uh, it was during COVID that we kind of formed this friendship. And so we couldn't meet up in person. So here I am, you know, making these recipes and sending him the food to taste. And he would give me feedback on the food and he would tell me what he remembered, what he didn't remember, what, you know, the, his memories as a child of this food. And it was, it's just one of the greatest gifts for me to be able to cook for him and to explore these recipes that were worth someone's life to save. Stephen and I created this friendship and I began cooking the recipes and we've taken our friendship to the point of philanthropy and have recently did a fundraiser at the home of Joan Nathan in, in DC and we raised in one night $180,000 and that money will go to digitizing written works in the museum's collection department. 
to help paint a better picture of that fundraising event, we reached out to my old friend Joan Nathan. She explained to me how it was that Elan asked her to get involved with the project. Well, because I write about Jewish food, the Holocaust Museum, and Alan, he probably thinks of me as kind of his mother in food. I hate to say it. At least he doesn't think of me as his grandmother. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so he just they decided to do a fundraiser for the Holocaust Museum. He wanted me to be part of it. And, uh, you know, I was delighted to be because I, I've seen lots of books like this. I don't usually open my house. I mean, I, op- I I certainly open my house, but I don't open, first of all, to 100 strangers. I don't do that, you know. Alon and his staff took over my house. I mean, literally. And, um, and then it was very moving to see Stephen taste these foods. This was the first time that I got to cook the recipes from the book and actually hand them to Stephen and be with him while he tasted them. And one of the recipes were these, this little hors d'oeuvre called potato circles. And it was this yeasted potato dough stuffed with ground lamb and and, um, yogurt. And uh, when he was a kid, he remembers going into the kitchen and seeing them and wanting to eat them, but he wasn't allowed to because they were just for the adults that were about to come over for a, a party that his parents were throwing. And he had that memory of these little hors d'oeuvre potato circles. And so I made them for this event. And when Stephen walked into the house and I, I brought him into the into Joan's kitchen, I said, Stephen, here are all the potato circles that you want. <laughs> you can eat as many as you want. Uh, and it's just those moments that, for me, connect the dots on everything, you know, and, and it make me feel just so happy about what we're doing together. I'm always inspired by the power that food has, and this is really one of those clear examples of that. My, my whole life... I've used cooking and I've used food as a way to connect with people. And it continues to this day. It opens up these doors and I now get to, you know, raise money with Stephen. And we're going to continue to do that throughout 2023. We're going to do several, uh, like a a national tour where uh, I'll be cooking recipes from his book and we'll be raising money for the museum's collections department. Because... The more that this written work is digitized, the more that it can be shared with people. And now his family will have access to these recipes and his grandkids can cook from the cookbook and talk about, you know, their family. I, to this day, and I'm almost 80 years old, I get a thrill when I find something, not just of the Jewish past, but of the past that people can resurrect and have for themselves. You get the strength of who you are. And if you don't have any of these recipes, then who are you? You know, what what do you come from? That was New Orleans chef Alan Shia and cooking legend 
Joan Nathan. Elan is holding fundraisers across the country intended to assist the Holocaust Museum's culinary preservation projects. You can learn more about upcoming events and how you can help by visiting Elan's website, palmhospitality.com slash givingback. You'll find a link on our website, poppytooker.com. Coming up next, our culinary sleuthing continues with retired librarian Gerald Patu. He joins us to discuss an obscure cookbook he uncovered from Lafayette, Louisiana that had been lost to time. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now celebrating their centennial by donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. What a way to say thank you to the community they call home. My name is Gerald Patu. I'm a retired librarian with over 40 years of experience, mostly in special libraries. I am an avid cookbook collector focused on Louisiana, Louisiana cookbook history and food history. Born and raised in a farming and food family in New Iberia, Gerald Patu has a keen interest in the culinary history of our state, especially his native Acadiana. Driven by this curiosity, Gerald discovered a rare recipe collection that had been lost to time, the Lafayette Cookbook. Originally printed in 1922, the recipe book was undertaken by the First United Methodist Church of Lafayette, Louisiana. Due to Gerald's efforts, this obscure book has now been reprinted 100 years later offering readers a glimpse into another time. Well, uh, it's been a labor of love uh, that I've used my expertise and my skills to uncover 
uh, Louisiana cookbooks and that one particular method that uh, located this particular lost text and narrative was found at an antique dealer, book dealer in Chicago using eBay. And once I had my hands on it, uh, the research began. Uh, and I began to research exactly how rare this is, how scarce it is, and how many copies are there. Well, lo and behold, there were no copies on OCLC, which is the world's largest library database. So uh, long story short, I was really sitting on quite an artifact. And uh, with all of that glee and excitement, I, I began to pursue other interests and find out more about it. And uh, that's exactly how this is sort of unfolded. Tell me about your personal tie to this book. Well, my personal ties go back a long, long way. I, my family is from Acadiana. Uh, we've been in Iberia Parish, and we're a, a family of sugarcane farmers on my mother's side. And on my father's side, they were restaurateurs and hotel people. His father was Frederick Patu. So genetically speaking, <laughs> I was born with a, a, an interest in food, we talked about it at the dinner table, in the breakfast table, in the lunch table. And so it's in your veins and in your blood and in your genetic code. You tend to keep that with you and use it as you move through your professional life. One of my uh, noted experiences uh, in, in professional life was I was the librarian at Domino Sugar in New York when I went to school at Columbia. Uh, I was hired after I finished that program in library preservation, which adds an element to this too. I'm, I'm a preservation person. I believe in not only restoring library books, but cookbooks and all artifacts related to our cultural history. Uh, I returned from New York to New Orleans uh, and I became the librarian uh, curator of library resources at the historic New Orleans collection. With my aging parents, I returned to uh, this area and I became the library director at LSU in Eunice, which really had a quite an interesting historic collection of materials, but it was a completely different type of French materials, French speaking Cajun, Acadian culture, as opposed to New Orleans is more a Creole culture and cultures from the islands and the Caribbean and things like that. So again, I think I was more able to focus on, I mean, from Lake Charles to Alexandria to Homa and that triangle of people and uh, different types of cultures that add to the Cajun food culture. But at the same time, I was collecting cookbooks and cookbooklets and pamphlets and reading and, and, and doing the same thing I was doing at the Historic New Orleans Collection. So I really have amassed quite a collection of materials. People think of South Louisiana, and they assume that we're all Catholic. Let's talk about the Methodists, Gerald, and how they figure into this story. Absolutely. People think that, like, all of our cooking is Cajun cooking, and they really don't know what the Native Americans contributed, or perhaps some people don't know that there's a German settlement in Acadia Parish, and they made contributions to the gumbo by throwing some great sausage in there, 
or the different elements of people in this area, uh, African-Americans and their specific uh, contributions to not only music like Zydeco or things like that, but their contributions to foodstuffs and food items. But the Methodist and religious groups are also contributors, various religions. We all think the Catholics uh, made the substantial contributions to our cooking, but believe it or not, my uh, research and this finding this little book indicates that the Methodist congregations actually made their own specific uh, contributions and they had a method, they had a routine. Their process was based around what was called service groups or service circles. And they were compiling recipes from the Methodist community. And so these were the building blocks of cooking in those areas like Lake Arthur and Basil and like here in Lafayette. Now, these recipes reflect their religion and their cooking. And out of this, we are keenly aware that Lafayette and some of its service organizations and social group organizations have produced some wonderful cookbooks. You go way back to 1922 and you talk about the building blocks of cooking. This was like one of these manuals. <laughs> this is what people were cooking in 1922 Lafayette. In addition to that, there's some wonderful ads, advertisements from stores, the Owl Drug Store, uh, Denbo and Nicholson Hardware Store, Royal Baking Powder, all of these various ingredient people that were making contributions to cooking in Lafayette, which was not Cajun. There is no Cajun in this cookbook at all. The word Cajun doesn't appear. It is interesting to note that the word Creole appears in Louisiana Creole pralines. This is not what you would expect. The The recipes in here for things like um, brains au gratin, Swiss steak, you know, baked apples stuffed with sausage. These are not things that you find in other cookbooks from South Louisiana usually. A absolutely. Uh, and that's what's interesting about it. And because I've searched the time period and I keep looking, I, I'm a creature of habit. I go to antique shops and stop at places and dig in boxes and go to estate sales. I'm still looking for cookbooks around Lafayette in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s that give rise to this notion that everything was Cajun and Cajun cooking. But this cookbook from the Methodist has recipes for petty pois peas, uh, uh, green corn cakes, tomato macaroni baskets and other various recipes that were not that were not Cajun. So I think I think it's a, a remarkable contribution and it expands the discussion of what others were cooking. The Methodist Church in Lafayette had no idea that this book existed, did they? No, they did not. And uh, that's part of my story. After I found it, I went to UL and there was a different director at UL at that time, and their interests were really not in reprinting Louisiana cookbooks. But Poppy, you know me, and I don't give up. I might have backed off for a little while, but I went back, and things changed, like everything today, policies, times, and a new director and a new UL press 
person came together and we had a wonderful productive conversation and they said, well, let's get you and the United Methodist Church of Lafayette together. Let's talk about this and see if you can generate interest from them. Well, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and now through your diligent work, it's back in print and available. Absolutely. The Methodist Church has it placed it on its webpage. Uh, you have to scroll down a little bit to get to it. So they're in the business of selling books, and UL Press, they will be selling their copies. So, Gerald, you found a second copy. I actually did. That's a great part of the story, too. I like to tell, uh, as I said, I'm a creature of habit. And if I go to Brobridge or if I go to Crowley and I know I have 15 to 20 minutes to kill, I know where there's an antique shop or a shop that I want to go spend some time in looking for things. And there is an antique shop in Brobridge. And there's one booth in there that I've known for a long time because I dig in the various boxes. They do change their inventory periodically. But I, I felt like this booth at this antique shop, these people must have been Lafayette people because they had photographs. They had every book UL Press published and lots and lots of old serials, UL serials that were published on uh, Acadiana history and stuff like that. And so one day... I was digging in one of those boxes with old pictures and pamphlets. And, you know, a lot of people would just throw that out. And, what, and I found a second copy of Lafayette Cooks, but you would not believe the condition. It was totally falling apart. It's like it had gone through Hurricane Katrina and Ida, all of them. You can tell that, you know, this is what happens when people throw 1922 cookbooks in a box and they put them in the attic and we go through storms. We don't go through one. We maybe go through three or four. And so these artifacts are lost, just like I lived in New Orleans during Katrina and people in Gentilian that flooded all over the city, all of their treasures, family photos, but their cookbooks too, they got wet and lost. And I don't know that ever some of those will, will ever find some of those artifacts and, and, and footsteps on our, our cultural path. Well, I am just thrilled to death to be able to add this book to my rare cookbook collection because you rescued it. It's back from the brink of extinction. Thank you for this amazing work, Gerald. You're quite welcome, but my work is not finished because I'm still looking. I'm, I suspect there are others out there and we're on the road. That was Gerald Patu, retired librarian and culinary detective. For more information on how you can get a copy of the 1922 Lafayette cookbook, visit poppytooker.com. What is the value of those old cookbooks you've got sitting around your house? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back.
Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Winter on the North Shore brings king cake flavored must-haves and Mardi Gras festivities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the value of old cookbooks? With the plethora of recipes instantly available online, I've often wondered what will happen to my cookbook collection when I'm not around to use them anymore. It may surprise you to learn that often old cookbooks have a greater value than other types of books. The distinction of best-selling cookbook of all time goes to that American classic, The Joy of Cooking. First published by Irma Rombauer in 1931, Joy has been continuously in print since 1936 and altogether has sold more than 20 million copies. The most recent edition came in 2019 and was published by Irma's great-grandson, John Becker, and his wife, Megan Scott. Julia Child herself claims to have learned to cook from the joy of cooking. Her classic two-volume set, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, holds the distinction of fetching the highest price ever on Abe Books, a popular rare book site. Selling for $7,500, the first editions were signed by both Simone Beck and Julia Child herself. So don't be too quick to discard your mom's old cookbooks. Look between the pages to see notes left behind with treasured tips penciled in among the gravy stains. In no time, you'll be taking a trip down memory lane peppered with lots of priceless food memories. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. I'm Nikki Pfeffer, editor of A New Orleans Author in Mark Twain's Court. Letters from Grace King's New England Sojourns. Author Grace King was born in antebellum New Orleans and lived till the Great Depression. From a family with an aristocratic background, 
King used food and culture to entertain guests and maintain clout with people after the Civil War. Through her letters and memoirs, she provides a window into life in New Orleans following Reconstruction. She also had relationships with notable figures like Mark Twain, historian Charles Garay, and the abolitionist and suffragist Julia Ward Howe. Historian Mickey Pfeffer joined us in the studio to talk about this Southern woman of letters, her intense interest in food and entertaining, and what her place is in the canon of New Orleans history. Grace King was a uh, fiction writer and also became a historian later in her writing life. She was born in 1852 and died in 1932, and she first wrote fiction, short stories mainly. Her most popular collection of short stories is Balcony Stories. And then she moved into history. She was kind of a protege of Charles Garay, who was the Creole historian. He was a friend of her father's, so she kind of inherited that mantle after a while. She started writing biographical sketches, and then publishers asked her to write especially a book on New Orleans. They were doing a series of cities, and she wrote New Orleans, The Place and the People. And that is another popular book of hers, a reliable history, but from a personal place. What time in history did she write that book in? What was the New Orleans she was looking at? 1893, it was published. Mm. She knows everyone and everything and is politically connected. So her letters are deliciously gossipy about (laughs) New Orleans people and what's going on and so um, every day as I transcribe her letters, it's a treat. It's like reading a novel every day. How did you come to be so interested in Grace King? How did your lives become virtually intertwined? I was doing a dissertation on the women's department at the Cotton Centennial Exposition in what is now Audubon Park. And I was looking for um, first-person accounts of having been to that World's Fair. And I came across her letters at LSU Hill Library. And again, she was so gossipy. She didn't participate in the women's department, but she knew everything that was going on behind the scenes. And she was telling her sister everything that was going on behind the scenes. One sister married, one of four sisters married and moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. So she had to keep her sister au courant on what was going on. So that's where all the gossip comes in. And uh, so I found her there. I used a little piece of her letters there that were pertinent to the World's Fair, 1884-85. And she met her editor and mentor there at the fair. And she, that's when her writing life began. Why is Grace King important in New Orleans history? These letters reveal the daily life of a New Orleanian in the swirl of activity after the Civil War and during Reconstruction and during the First World War. What was happening? How were people treating each other? Um, That's what the letters are for me. Her balcony stories and 
New Orleans, The Place and the People, those two books have a, a place in New Orleans history. And she was very politically connected. Her father was an attorney and a judge. Her brother was a judge. She sort of befriends Mark Twain? Yes. Well, the, the mentor that she met at the Cotton Centennial lived next door to Mark Twain, and he was the co-author of The Gilded Age, this famous book that they wrote that gave the name to that particular age. And uh, he invited Grace to come and spend some months with him. So when she went to spend months with him, she became part of the neighborhood and the friends in the neighborhood. So did she dine there at Mark Twain's house? Yes, yes. In fact, she stayed with them for a month in 1888. Oh, my gosh. She met them in 1887 and spent some time with them, lots of time, because the neighbors went back and forth to each other's houses. And the the Clemenses, that was the Twains, gave a dinner for her. And what they had there was olives, salted almonds, and and bonbons in curious dishes, decanters uh, that held wine. The soup was clare, the clarest you ever saw, delicious flavor. They had sherry, then fresh salmon and white wine sauce, Apollinaris water, sweetbreads and cream served in little porcelain pots, then broiled chicken, green peas, new potatoes, tomato salad. That's when she describes the tomatoes sliced but still in shape. Over it all was poured the mayonnaise. And um, uh, Charlotte Russe and wine jelly with candied cherries on top with whipped cream and strawberries with stems on that that they dipped into powdered sugar. So... You describe that Grace King makes a point of food as social capital. What do you mean by that? Well, the Kings lost their fortune during the Civil War, as most people did. And then her father was just trying to get back into some kind of financial situation, and he died in 1881. And They were left seven children and a mother with very little money. So they were always watching their pennies. But because her mother was such a good cook and then her sister was such a good cook, and they always managed to have a cook in the house, they would use their ability to serve a nice meal editors and publishers who came through New Orleans, they would have them for dinner. Or if someone was lecturing at Tulane, they would invite that person for dinner. That was, in a way, their social capital. They didn't have money to treat people to very much, but they could really put on a nice meal. Did they manage to hang on to some of their lovely things? No. They didn't, but she bought secondhand things. They would buy secondhand things. So after Charles Garay died in 1895, Mrs. Garay moved in with them and brought some of her things. And she brought Charles Garay's books, which Grace King eventually gave to Tulane in his name. 
Charles Garay was a historian. He wrote one of the first histories of Louisiana in French. Um, his grandfather was Etienne Bore, who oh. had plantation that became part of Audubon Park and is credited with granulating sugar. So famous family, but he lost a lot of his money in the Civil War. Now, Mickey, Julia Ward Howe, who people will know from the Battle Hymn of the Republic and her women's advocacy, you discovered that she was a friend of the King's. Julia Ward Howe was the president of the Women's Department at the Cotton Centennial Exposition. And after she and her daughter, Maud, stayed in the um, Royal Hotel, formerly the St. Louis Hotel, for a few weeks, they moved into John Morris's house, the, the Lottery King, and he lived next door to the Kings. So they spent a lot of time with each other. The Howes were there for six months. And in Maud Howe's book uh, about her mother, Three Generations, she writes that they went to the Kings for dinner, and um, Mrs. King made a boulebaise better than they had in Marseilles. So, yes, and there are other there are other times when they eat together. In fact, Grace King talked about how they grabbed that food, and she was another gossipy piece that they didn't eat properly. You know, they kind of grabbed for food. The house? Yes. Oh, so she's writing about them, too. Oh, yes. Tell me how you came to find the recipes. Oh, the, res- the ber- recipes, collection of recipes that I am almost certain is Nan's handwriting. I've spent enough time with Nan, the middle sister who stayed unmarried, um, to recognize her handwriting. I found it at Milford Calhoun's estate sale. He had a number of Grace King's items, and this was just listed as a um, 19th century handwritten cookbook or recipes. So it wasn't identified in the collection as belonging to the King family? No, it wasn't. So how did you discover? This must have been so exciting. Well, I I recognize that it was Nan's handwriting. Yes, it's very exciting. And (laughs) the people who to whom she attributes various recipes in this collection were friends of the King's. In the uh, menu that begins the collection of recipes, uh, she runs through about a week and a half of menus. Oyster soup, boiled fish, baked potatoes, vegetable soup, broiled trout. Uh, Grace King's brother, Branch, also unmarried, spent a lot of time across the lake. He would bring back soft-shell crabs, a bushel of crabs, trout, perch, and so that was another time when they would invite guests to come. They would have these free entrees that they could serve to guests. Well, Mickey, what a treat and a delight it's been. It's been delicious. (laughs) (laughs) That was historian and author Mickey Pfeffer. 
Her book is a New Orleans author in Mark Twain's court, Letters from Grace King's New England Sojourns. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>